to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host today, James Lalonde, and I'm here with T. Keat Ong, a Malaysian politician, son of a fisherman, trained as an engineer in uh, his university days, and has had an amazing impact on the country of Malaysia, as well as the way that country has uh, dealt with the Belt and Road. And we're both here in Beijing today. Mr. Ong is taking part in the Belt and Road Forum. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ong. Uh, For our listeners who don't know you uh, very well, could you please introduce yourself, including your stint as Minister of Transport for Malaysia, and what you're actually up to these days, and uh, what brings you to Beijing this time, and why perhaps this is an important time for Malaysia in regards to the Belt and Road. Yeah, good morning, James. Uh, hi, dear folks. My name is Ong Thi Kiet, uh, the chairman of a Malaysia-based in- independent think tank uh, known as Center for the New Inclusive Asia, or in short, CNIA, which is one of the three Malaysian think tanks invited by China to attend the Belt and Road uh, Think Tank Forum held in Beijing. Prior to founding this think tank, Actually, I was trained as an engineer, but I spent more than 30 years in Malaysian politics, serving such portfolios as Deputy Speaker of Malaysian Parliament and the Federal Minister for Transport. Well, you know, our focus here on the podcast is the Belt and Road Initiative. And I recall when Mahathir came back into power in 2018, I think it was May, he immediately called for the cancellation of the East Coast Rail Link and uh, you know, given what we do for a living, I had a feeling that maybe all BRI projects might eventually become bargaining chips of politicians and liable to be canceled at a moment's notice once a new regime comes into power. I actually remember thinking that how the East Coast Railway Link played out might even end up affecting the entire momentum of the Belt and Road Initiative. From your vantage point, how would you characterize how Mahathir looked at the East Coast Rail Link and how his view of it has changed over time. Uh, Yes, indeed, ECRL or the East Coast Rail Link was highly politicized during the past general election held in 2018. Dr. Mahathir objected to the project when he was still in the opposition, largely because of the hefty sum involved which he claimed Malaysia can hardly afford, besides the way the project was awarded through direct negotiation. Mm. But when he announced the resumption of the project with a revised deal of late, 
he maintained that he's not against ECRL per se. In fact, his main concern is a huge loan provided for ECRL by the Exim Bank of China, which he said the country can ill afford, largely due to the 1MDB fiasco, a financial scandal uh, haunting the previous administration. Ah, okay. And that was one of the reasons contributing to the downfall of the previous prime minister. At the time, according to media reports, it first seemed the entire project might just be cancelled. At what point did the government of Malaysia realize the ECRL was potentially worth saving and then decided to reach out to Chinese officials? I guess it's really important here since this is all happening in real time and other countries are watching, you know, who made the first contact? You know, was it Malaysia? Was it China? Do you have a feel for the timeline? and kind of the broad brush strokes of how it came to where we are today, where it looks like things are back on track. Uh, when the present coalition government won the general election last May, the new government initially announced that it would review all the mega projects signed by the previous administration. And ECRL uh, happened to be one of them, as the new government claimed that the cost of the contract appeared to be exorbitant, and the terms of the contract were deemed lopsided. Besides this, the new government is also concerned about the unprecedented high national debt. And nevertheless, both governments had never ceased to engage with one another on the subject matter, as the project was merely suspended, pending final decision. The work was stopped on July 3rd, 2018. I still could remember the date. Okay. But the agreement has never been officially terminated. Uh, as regards to who made the first move, it doesn't matter, as Malaysia has a very long, cordial relationship with China. Mahathir himself visited China seven times during his first stint as the Prime Minister of Malaysia. And he himself has defended China in many occasions, in many international meetings. And he reiterated repeatedly that China had never invaded Malaysia, or formerly known as Malaya, in its uh, 2,000 years of relationship with Malaysia. Both countries knew that terminating Israel is bad for both sides. No, nobody is going to gain from that. And China BRI's image and credibility will certainly suffer a serious dent. And Malaysia too has to pay a huge sum of compensation, which runs into billions of Malaysian ringgit for breaching the contract if ECRL were to be terminated. In the past nine months, ever since the ECRL work was stopped, Malaysian government has been repeatedly telling the people that China understands the financial predicament that Malaysia is facing and China is willing to negotiate for a win-win solution. This has been reported widely in Southeast Asian media and both sides have been equally committed to salvaging the project. This is the kind of uh, perception that we have. So maybe it was just too big of a juicy story to say that, you know, because the initial feeling was that it was completely rejected, maybe cancelled, 
and you know it was it was a it was a big deal. But it sounds like, you know, you had all the contracts under review, which seems fairly normal, and uh, so uh, it's very very good insight. From this episode, perhaps, if I may draw some early conclusion or early observation of my own. Mm-hmm. If at all there's anything for other nations to learn from this ECRL episode, it is that countries must study carefully their financial health and loan sustainability before they can commit to mega infrastructure projects such as this ECRL. And China, on the other hand, should also be careful and tactful of the transparency of infrastructure projects to avoid such projects from being politicized, because they don't seem to understand in depth or sufficiently about the kind of politics in the host country. It sounds like both sides wanted a resolution, but uh, they also had to save face. So, in some sense, as you mentioned earlier, China's stakes were a little, maybe even a little bit higher. With the U.S. trade war, the U.S.-backed FUD that we see today, uh, what we call fear, uncertainty, and doubt that's being spread around about the BRI with the other agendas besides just the trade agendas and the, and so forth, you know, this is being propagated by the U.S. and some other, other countries. You know, China, I think, needed a resolution to be perceived as a win-win. And... I think uh, besides, you know, what you just shared with us, who are the key players in the negotiation and what were the key points for negotiation? Because I think, again, I think other countries will learn from this experience. Uh, well, I would say that it is in the mutual benefits, mutual interest to seek a win-win solution. Mm. as it serves to benefit both sides. Mm. Now, under the prevailing circumstances, perhaps only the BRI critics would, would be happy to see any China-linked infrastructure projects running into problems, as this would pro- provide them with uh, further credence and more ammunition to support their anti-BRI rhetorics. Mm. On the key players involved in the ECRL negotiation, you might be well aware that uh, Tun Daim Zainuddin, the former finance minister of Malaysia, who has been uh, appointed by Dr. M, Dr. Mahathir, to head the Council for Eminent Personalities, had been uh, hogging the limelight. He himself actually uh, must be given the credit because in many occasions, especially when uh, the negotiation uh, seem to uh, to be uh, getting more and more challenging. I still could remember. Now he was a guy assigned by Tun Mahathir yeah, to China to deal with the Chinese on the uh, the new terms, so to speak. And to my knowledge, Daim was given the responsibility to negotiate with China mm-hmm. an uh, affordable deal under Malaysia's current situation, current constraints. I may not have the privilege of knowing whom he met and what he discussed, but the new deal now is what he brought to the table with the understanding of an accommodation by the Chinese government. 
that is important because to my understanding that some of the terms some of the terms uh, which have already been made public now well actually are not easy to negotiate with it was a indeed a tough negotiation but yeah. a real and a real negotiation exactly and uh, the key issues perhaps if i may uh, mm. share with you uh, were primarily centered around the terms and conditions of the previous contract which i said earlier it was deemed lopsided oh, i see and uh, on top of that of course another key dimension is the project costs operational risk and the design optimization these are the four things that uh, he ultimately managed to uh, uh, renegotiate and uh, uh, got a new deal back to Malaysia. And if I may, just because in our listeners who are not in Malaysia, how is it now perceived in Malaysia uh, based on this, this negotiation? The Malaysian public has been receptive uh, of the new deal. And uh, well, even the critics of ECRL projects back home in Malaysia, uh, in fact, they seem to, to be eager to justify why they, they were then opposed to the project. Uh -huh. But now that <laughs> they seem to be very quiet. I mean, this is the kind of perception that I have. Interesting. So even in Malaysia, it seems like it's a win-win for the, the original opponents as well as the people who are behind the project now that things have kind of settled down. Uh, that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, how the ECRL is going to benefit the average Malaysian. Um, besides the sheer size of the project and the debt load for Malaysia, some critics have said that, you know, the East Coast states are the backwaters of the Malaysian Peninsula, and they won't be able to carry enough passengers and freight to justify its construction. According to them, the upkeep, just to keep the railway running, it will make the ROI, you know, perhaps uh, marginal or negative. Some have even said that it's primarily a strategic situation where the ECRL could serve as a land bridge across the Malay Peninsula for shipments of Chinese goods in the event of, the, of a blockade of the Straits of Malacca by, say, China's adversaries. Straits of Malacca have always been a very strategic po point in the world, as we all know. Do you have any advice for those listeners who are just not really familiar with the, the Malaysian situation to understand the pros and cons of, as you said earlier, carrying on with this uh, thing that's been started? And what do you see the key positive outcomes are for this, this new updated version of the ECRL for the Malaysian people? Uh, before I proceed further with my take, uh, let me put the record straight by sharing the fact with you that the idea of real link between the west and east coast of peninsular Malaysia was actually first mooted as early as 1980s, decades before the inception of BRI. Mm, and it was prompted then by the need to address the long outstanding economic disparity between the two areas. Malaysians residing in the East Coast states, namely Kelantan, Terengganu, and Pahang, deserve to have their economic well-being improved through inclusive growth with better logistic connectivity in place. True enough that ECRL would serve as a land bridge for freight shipment 
linking the East Coast states, uh, East Coast port of Kuantan, which is facing the South China Sea, to the more established port clan on the West Coast along the Straits of Malacca. Nevertheless, it served not just the shipment of Chinese goods, but many others as well. For instance, like uh, the Japanese goods, Korean goods, or wherever. Chinese goods, well, that is not the issue, right? And I hope those who are obsessed with the uh, containment of China would not ultimately train their guns at ECRL as their collateral damage. <laughs> this is something which we wouldn't want to see end of the day. As to the naysayers and the doomsayers of ECRL, they should be knowledgeable enough to know that infrastructure, including rail link, would always play good catalyst in economic development. On the contrary, uh, smart strategic uh, planners would hardly wait for sufficient passenger and freight loads or market demands in short to justify the construction of infrastructure. And this is in line with what the Chinese believe that uh, if you want to get rich, build road first. Yes. This is the common belief among the Chinese, even the ethnic Chinese overseas. Well, and throughout history of mankind, it's proved to be true. So I, I, I totally agree. I appreciate your insight. I, I wanted to kind of finish off with just the Belt and Road's five years plus old. And this is one of the largest projects that's been kind of gone through, then being renegotiated in a, in a very, sounds like a very positive way. I think it's a good example for future projects, as you've mentioned several times. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think other countries could learn from this specific example that uh, your country has, has had with the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, well, if at all, there's anything for other countries to learn from this uh, ECRL project, it is that the countries must study carefully before committing to any mega infrastructure projects. And uh, what I mean to say is, on the recipient, or rather on the host country side, now, certainly they need to study their own financial health, as I said earlier and their loan sustainability, their ability to pay the loan. And also at the same time, they have to handle their home politics very, very carefully because they could e this could easily turn into a political time bomb for them. And on their side, of course, the Chinese, they should be mindful of the transparency and loan sustainability of uh, any infrastructure projects uh, to avoid such projects from being politicized. And on top of that, perhaps, if I may suggest, even when we talk about the project feasibility studies, now this could also be one of the issues that the critics of any projects mm. might love to deep dive into. And uh, feasibility viability of the projects actually should also be made transparent, if at all possible. And this is something that I personally have been advocating for. If, the, if this particular project, the, the East Coast Railway Link, 
was was actually taken as a case study and then made very open as far as what was spent where to do what and how and and put out there as a as a real case study like you see with with other business case studies do you think that would be very useful oh yes certainly and on top of that of course until today not many malaysians let alone foreigners understand that uh, this project actually was not mooted as a BRI related project. As I said earlier, it was first mooted in 1980s because of the need to address the economic uh, disparity between East Coast and West Coast. And uh, uh, both sides, namely Malaysians and the mainland Chinese, they don't seem to uh, to tell the inside stories good enough to the people of Malaysia as well as international community. And this has been uh, uh, made uh, an issue unnecessarily to me because people say that this is BRI uh, related, uh, this is perhaps another round of uh, that threat. Right. And uh, to me, that doesn't make sense. Right. The debt trap uh, word, those two words are getting a lot of publicity, obviously being pushed forward by some people who would maybe not like the BRI to succeed. I think everything you've said today is about, you know, be aware of what debt you're getting yourself involved in as a country. When you take on anything, it's not a free free ride. I think the debt trap word is like a one-sided word. I mean, someone set a trap for someone to walk into. Exactly. And is what I've heard from you today is very different. It's like, it's it's a mutual thing. Two people or two parties are involved and they both need to be aware. And so if they're both aware and they're both cognizant of what the risks are and what the benefits are, then they'll, they'll it won't, there's no trap scenario there's at no all. There's no trap at all. This mm-hmm. element doesn't seem to exist at all. Yeah. Not because when administration uh, under uh, Najib Razak uh, uh, signed a deal. Certainly, of course, he had in mind the necessity to uh, address the economic problems uh, in the economic backwaters along the East Coast. And uh, the problem, crux of the matter, lies in the uh, the quantum, the quantum of loan mm-hmm. that he agreed to uh, to get from Exim Bank of China. Right. Right. And uh, at that material time, actually, he did not really make it transparent uh, to the parliament, to the people of Malaysia. Right. And when this was unearthed later, certainly, this turned into a time bomb. Right. And uh, coming back to the so-called death trap, uh, because to me and many other Malaysians, uh, this is not a trap, uh, because China came in uh, much later upon the request of Malaysian government then, mm-hmm. right? And uh, their role was no more than a service provider, right? Service provider for EPCC, Engineering, Procurement, Construction, and Commissioning. So these are the four elements. Mm-hmm. So I don't see the uh, relevance of that threat uh, in this case. So to rephrase it, not knowing the, the quantum size or the, the implications of the loan a country is getting itself into 
and not being, say, transparent about it with with the country uh, is more like setting a trap for yourself rather than is another country coming in and exactly yeah yeah yeah. Well, wow, this has been a very informative interview. I know personally, and I am sure our listeners have learned a lot today about the situation, and especially since this is one of the, not only one of the largest, but also one of the first uh, key projects that have had some revision that the Belt and Road is evolving. And so I really appreciate you spending the time with us today, and I thank you for coming to the Voices of Belt and Road podcast. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you, folks. Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, B-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.